IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On the show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we look back on the albums of 2002. My name is Stephen Hyden and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, it's now his turn <laughs> to get COVID, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, I mean, I feel weird kind of congratulating you on the massive outpouring of support that you received when you announced COVID uh, on yes. fr- uh, last Friday. But like, also, it, it just kind of revealed to me that aside from you know the actual symptoms of getting COVID, like I live in fear that you know my COVID announcement would be like a total flop. Like just, oh. it's like you know when when the bassist goes solo from the band and like no one gives a shit about like their album and whatever. It's like no, nah, wouldn't happen. I think <laughs> uh, you know the the emo discourse. I think would be taken off offline for a week or two if you were not uh, you know in the in the middle of it. If you were if you were sick, <laughs> I think there would be a lot of people out there. Imagine like all of the emo albums that would not be uh, represented on Pitchfork. <laughs> yeah. If you were uh, sick. I don't know if I have to imagine that, but um, yeah, the, <laughs> the, I, I think it just kind of shows the difference between the way, like perhaps like you're viewed in the public realm for me. Like when I got married and I like took like a week off, like I remember like one guy tweeting, it's like, dude, how could you get married instead of reviewing the world is a beautiful place out? Now look what happened. Exactly. I think people just exactly. maybe view you as a human being and me just as like a, a liaison to greater emo discourse. But you know what? That's the role <laughs> we serve in IndieCast. It's a good balance. Exactly. And I just want to say too, and you alluded to this, uh, all the people that, uh, sent along their 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 well wishes i appreciate that uh i'm about 85 percent uh. right now i would say i'm my head <laughs> is uh still kind of cloudy uh i have a bit of a cough i don't know if you can tell my voice i'm i'm congested yeah. uh i'm probably gonna mispronounce even more words <laughs> in this episode uh because my my throat and my brain uh are both compromised uh right now um I don't know. I mean, I'm glad I'm yeah. vaxxed. I'm glad I'm boosted because I think this would be a lot worse. I I had like one or two kind of bad days. One of them was the day that we were supposed to record uh-huh. last week. Uh, you know, I was looking at the outline, which is basically the outline for this episode. We were <laughs> going to do 2002 albums last week. And I was looking at it and uh, I was like, I cannot think of anything to say about turn on the bright lights right now. <laughs> I, I, there's nothing I'm trying to think of something to say about uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and I, I nothing's come to mind so this must be a pretty bad uh, illness if I if I can't uh, talk about these albums that I know very well uh, but I don't know I mean I don't know if you know anyone who's had COVID yeah, I'm sure you oh, do yeah. but like <laughs> for me it just it wasn't like any like overwhelmingly bad sickness at any point. It's just like this lingering fatigue. Yeah, you know, I just I feel like I'm I've been hung over for a week. Yeah, basically. And I, and I was kind of hope not hoping. Like I obviously wanted you to rest, but like in in light of you publishing the uh, best lead singers of all time, uh, a massive undertaking. By the way, over at Uproxx, like I thought that like the episode would be. Like sometimes you see on YouTube, like shows where the lead singer is like clearly struggling with a hangover, or they're drunk on stage, and you ha- you see like the bassist have to 
have to like pick up the slack with banter or maybe they let like the lead singer sing what like one of the or the lead guitarist sing one of the songs just like i, I don't know if we were gonna have like a fader fort situation here like with salem <laughs> but uh i'm glad i'm glad you rested up instead i was thinking more of like that time that dave Grohl like had to do a tour sitting in that big chair <laughs> because he broke yeah. his leg you know it could be something like yeah. that um but I, I i felt bad canceling i don't like to cancel a show i had every intention of doing the show last week, I actually, I I think I texted yeah. you about forty five minutes before we were about yeah. to record. Like I was I was pushing it right up to the deadline. And then I was like, I, I can't yeah. do it. And then then um, I had but, woken up at five forty five my time for absolutely no reason. But we're not going to get yeah, into exactly. That. <laughs> I know I feel bad. I feel that's like the downside of living in sunny San yeah. Diego that you have to get up really Nobody early to record knows our the show. Trouble I've seen. But I, it was also bad because we had so much good banter last oh. week that we weren't able to do. We had the cousin Greg <laughs> starting an indie rock TV show, or he's developing an indie rock yeah. show. There was a lot of banter there that we could. Yeah, have I'm done. sure that'll come to pass. Like that'll totally make it all the way through well, development. Do you remember that movie that was going to be made about Pitchfork? Yes, uh, I do. About ten years ago, I think. Yeah, who uh, was starring in that? I'm trying. I think it was Jonah Hill. Yes, was going to yes, be that a Pitchfork it. critic. Was it like, I think the story of it, because like, uh, like the Duplass brothers were going to do it. Yes, that's right. And I forgot to ask Mark Duplass about it when I interviewed him. What a, what a fucking unforced error. Yeah, I know. that. Well, and, I, and I'm told from inside sources that there's a screenplay for this movie that uh, is floating around that maybe <laughs> certain people, higher ups at Pitchfork, still have and mm. uh that needs to be uh leaked i think at some point but i think the story of that movie was that jonah hill plays a pitchfork writer mm. who writes a review of this band very snarky review mm. and the the lead singer of the band like takes his own life and mm. susan sarandon is like his mother oh. the, the, the the dead musician's mother and she gets she tries to get revenge on jonah hill huh um, Sounds like a massive hit. <laughs> is it possible that this that this Joan Hill character was based on you? Because I feel uh, like you would have been the guy in 2011 or so oh Lord. that would have been panning people. Oh, so maybe this man. is like in some way Ian Cohen related. No, the, well, no one consulted me. So <laughs> you think I Mark don't know. I guess, I, guess I, I missed out on I guess like what might have been like uh, I don't know being on the interview circuit or the the. Uh, the, the subject of much indie rock innuendo. So I don't know. I guess that was like a rejection equals protection type thing. I'm pretty, in, in light of that, I'm pretty, uh, I can say I'm glad this never came to pass. Yeah, that would have been amazing. Uh, it might have been, been <laughs> I, I feel bad for my country, but what amazing content. I was going to say it might have been, or like Brent D. Crizenzo. I don't know if I pronounced yeah. that correctly. Like he was, he was uh, mm. like a pretty yeah, famous. He was that dude for a while. In the aughts. I have to link to a lot of his posts when I write 20th anniversary reviews of like yeah. uh, emo records. We also missed the Greta Van Fleet uh, lead singer. She apologized <laughs> for appropriating indigenous culture. Yeah, boy, who, who amongst us? <laughs> yeah, because he, he wears um, like Native American garb. Or war. Wasn't this like from 2015 or something? I feel like he did it. I feel like when they were on SNL, he was wearing feathers. Okay. If I, I could be mistaken. I think there was feathers and maybe some sort of like headdress of some sort. I don't know. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that would have been a great that, thing. That's definitely a thing that happened. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Wilco, they, they released the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. 
reissue, and there's like 11 <laughs> LPs. 11 LPs, man. Which is, uh, which I can't, you know, not to, uh, I mean, I like how I said that we, we can't do this banter. Now I'm kind of making us do this banter because <laughs> I'm sad that we missed it. But to me, like, that Yankee Hotel Foxtrot box set, which by the way, like I'm I'm psyched that it's so big because there's yeah. a lot of cool outtakes on it. But it just to me, it illustrates again the ridiculousness of the vinyl uh boom mm-hmm. to some degree. That like like why would you buy that on vinyl? It's just so much vinyl. It is a lot of vinyl, but you know what? Like Wilk I mean, I I, I like that they're just leaning into the uh, stereotype of the Wilco fan. That like uh, like just someone who just will a has like the money to buy it and will buy it and also like a like I know it's not like Adele or Taylor Swift like causing a bottleneck in the vinyl uh, production uh, line but st- like doesn't this kind isn't it kind of the same thing like I, and mind you I don't believe that Wilco is selling like one eleventh of what like the last Adele or Taylor Swift album said but yeah. 11. I like how it wasn't 10. It's 11. Like, no, not 12. We have just enough outtakes to do. Like, is it a Zyreka type thing where, like, one of them has, like, the left uh, stereo mix? Or, like, maybe one day, like, that's what we will do. Like, oh, yeah. To, yeah, we're, we're going to do. We're gonna do an indie cast vinyl uh, release, you know, satisfy our fans, and I'm gonna be on one disc, and you're gonna be on another, and you gotta play it just right, or else there's like some weird mixing things going on. I mean, I think we should release every episode on vinyl. I yes. think that's something we should do. I think that the fans out there would love it. Yeah, like uh, whatever that the thing that Fish does, you know, like hey guys, we're going like straight from the audio board. Exactly. This is well, the cleanest it, possible indie cast. I mean, it is great. I, I do wonder too, because sometimes you buy records and they'll put like one album on two vinyl, uh, right. just so it sounds better. So then you get like three songs on one side. Yeah, and you have to keep flipping it over. Like, I wonder if that's part of it. Like, if maybe the album proper is two records too. I mean, that that's possible. That I always thought that was annoying, though. That. You hear like yeah, two you, songs. You know better than I it. do. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, do we want to talk about Elon Musk? Buying Twitter. This is not an uh, indie rock story, but Elon Musk buying Twitter. I feel like it's such a. It's indie adjacent. It's indie adjacent. <laughs> it's in- I think that you know the fact that like he was I don't know what had a child with Grimes means that yeah. Elon Musk is like for like forever grandfathered into the trend hashing uh, industry. So I don't even know if this per- apparently it's not going to happen now. So it was what? more or less. I-, I read something yesterday that he might be pulling out. Uh, don't you're you're asking the wrong guy. I mean, it way. seems like on his part, like a bad investment. I don't know why well, you would. Yeah, no to, shit, it's a bad investment. Why like, would you <laughs> want to be the person that decides, you know, what's allowable on Twitter? It just seems like you're 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 set up to lose no matter what because yeah. you're basically dealing with like uh, the most ill-tempered people on the planet. You know, are drawn to Twitter like moss to a flame, just perpetually upset, perpetually mm-hmm. indignant. Many of them work in the media, yeah. these ill-tempered people. Um, and I don't know how you, if you, I just feel like if you have like, if you're the richest man in the world, mm-hmm. why put your hand in that hornet's nest? I don't understand <sighs> it. Like, Because if you have that much money and like money is absolutely meaningless to you. Perhaps like owning Twitter is its own appeal. Like you can say, "Fuck it, I own Twitter." Like, 
or you know but I'm, I'm like hoping this like I, I'm I'm not one of those people where it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to quit Twitter because I'm like so philosophically opposed to Elon Musk. <laughs> like what I'm hoping for is that he buys it and like just does things that make it so lame that it turns into Facebook and just something I I gradually stop using because there are I think there's a pretty significant maybe it's more amongst media people who are just hoping for like a comet hitting the dinosaurs extinction level event for Twitter that will just like free us <laughs> from free, like free us from our bondage of Twitter. And like, this is as close as like, we're going to get to it aside from, I don't know, like Elon Musk, like open, like making all the DMS public for like I mean, a, an hour, like a purge, you know, you know, people like to blame Twitter though. And it's like, Twitter is a sort of neutral piece of technology. It's, it's us. It's the people it, it who are who make it bad. Like we're the bad ones. So even if you get rid of Twitter, wherever we are, yeah, me, we meaning like humankind, it's gonna make it bad. So you know, I just blaming Twitter to me is really <laughs> hilarious. It's like it's not Twitter. It's yeah. us. It's how we you're behave. Coming, and you're coming back from this COVID thing being awful grim and existential, man. <laughs> well, you know, I've, I, I've, I, I've seen the a other brush side. with mortality. This is like our Rick Rubin episode, man. <laughs> exactly. Um, I got to ask you something. So I saw this story (laughs) about, and this is a band I don't ever remember hearing about. Yeah. Uh, Dispatch. Do you know what the band Dispatch? Like I went to college at the University of Virginia, which is like real like roots rock central. And I got to say, I've, I dispatch is a band that I've only like referenced in type of guy jokes like on Twitter. Yeah. I probably get them confused with Switchfoot. Um, well, they're kind of more. So the reason we're talking about them is that they have an anti-war song called "The General." Yes, it's re-recorded in Russian, and the New York Times did a story on this. And basically, the the purpose of re-recording is that is that the band hopes that Russians hear this song. Mm-hmm. And they quit the army, basically. Like, they'll, yeah. they'll, like this, like they're, they're. This is sort of like, I don't know what you would call it. It's fortunate um, son of our times. Yes, it's like uh, some sort of uh, brainwashing, Sci- maybe brainwashing for good, like CIA doing wind of change, like the darker, more introspective <laughs> exactly. follow up. I don't know, but. And I was like, who is Dispatch? And they're a '90s band. And yes. you mentioned Switchfoot, but. I listened to like a bit of their music. It reminded yeah. me more. It seems like they're more in that sort of like maybe like rusted root. Oh yes. AOR kind of hippie-ish yeah. 90s music, but like yeah. like the second or third tier of that. Yeah, and the thing is like when this story hit, like it it, it seems like it exists almost in, like you would think it was like made up to make a New York Times story or like an Onion article, but more people made like AOR O-A-R, like crazy game of poker jokes than like actual dispatch jokes, which I I don't know if like people like get them confused or whether people are just like out there looking for opportunities to drop crazy game of poker jokes. I know I am, but yeah. uh, you, I don't even like you could talk about like how gross it is to like try to utilize this terrible event to leverage your own career. But at the same time, I think the you got to just respect the, uh, the the level of ego that <laughs> you need to think that yeah this is got this is going to change shit right here like people are going to turn their guns into plowshares because they heard the general 
and uh, we're going to, like, I am the new Bono. I was looking at their streaming numbers, and they're actually, like, pretty robust. Like, the general <laughs> has 62 million streams. Damn. I, and, and I don't know what it was before this, you know, re-recording. I, I think this is the original recording at 62 million. They have another okay. song called Only the Wild Ones that has 50 million streams. Mm. A song called Bang Bang, which I don't know if that's pro-war. Is that a pro-war song? Maybe? I don't know. Anyway, it has like 36 million, almost 37 million. So, I don't know. I, I'm always fascinated by bands that um, are sneaky popular. And this seems like maybe one yeah. of those. Fans also like G-Love and Special Sauce, OAR, and Citizen Cope. Yeah, they are exactly. Oh, Slightly Stupid is in there, too. Oh, Slightly Stupid. Yeah, by the way, if like if you're out for another week, I probably need to do a deep dive on Slightly Stupid. Because like that is like the dispatch for san diego like i cannot express to you how popular that band well, is. aren't here. they i thought isn't slightly stupid like more of like a sublime type yeah adjacent band yes and like they're more like a sublime but it's sort of like that but even more san diego i guess how how stoned do you have to be to go with slightly stupid as your band name and, and uh, stupid with like the it's not stupid. Oh oh yeah, it's yeah double O stupid. So like let's make our band name that much worse by yeah. spelling stupid that way. Um, I mean, like, how how do you feel good about yourself saying I'm going to the slightly stupid show? I mean, yeah, I look, hang out in San Diego and like spend like <laughs> ten minutes in San Diego. This is like to 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 San Diego what the Bodines are to Wisconsin. They are just oh, like man. this cultural ambassador. I'll take the Bodines, baby. Yeah, that embodies every every stereotype about our city. Do you know what uh, OAR is short for? Of a revolution. Of a, of a revolution. Maybe they should record. A, <laughs> yeah, uh, seriously. Ukraine Fucking song. live up to your name. Exactly. Like, but yeah, what revolution have you been has, has produced you? I, I, I'm I'm very skeptical of that band name. By the way, we got an email this week from someone who was mad that we made fun of the name English teacher. Oh. They didn't like okay. that. Okay. <laughs> I don't know uh, why I thought. Actually, I think that was like a couple weeks ago. We'll dwell on that and see how we can imp- do better IndieCast. Th- there is like a subgenre of our letters where people get upset when we make fun of band names. Oh. It's happened more than <laughs> once. And okay. it's like, look, it's easy comedy for us, okay? Yeah. We, we, we can't all... We can't always just be hashing out trends in an insightful yeah. way. Sometimes we have to pick up the low-hanging fruit. And, mm-hmm. you know, making fun of a band name... It's the lowest that, hanging fruit there nothing is. Nothing hangs lower than that. Yeah, but you know we got to eat that. Yes. And that fruit, that that low hanging fruit, can be tasty. It can be juicy. Delicious. Um, we're not going to do a mailbag this week. Yeah. Um, too many, too many people getting on our ass about making fun of wet leg <laughs> and true. English teacher and that's true. Laundry yeah. Day. So we're putting you guys in the penalty box. No. Yeah. We're, we're not doing a mailbag just because we uh, we're talking about the albums of 2002. There's like a lot to talk about here, so oh, yeah. we're, we're clearing out some space. We're also not going to do recommendation corner this week, just because we have oh. so much. We want to talk about albums from 20 years ago, not albums that are coming out now. <laughs> we want to live in the past uh, yes. in this episode. Uh, so we're going to be talking about some of our favorite albums of this year, uh, albums that maybe haven't aged for us as well. But before we get to that, should we just set the stage here? Like, what like what were you doing in 2002? Do you remember yeah, I, that far back? Oh, absolutely. I like, and, and I think this is important for us to bring up because. One thing that I've I try to point out as much as possible when talking about bands in a grander scheme of things is that you can never overstate the influence of someone's age, uh, like when it comes to like how they feel about music. And so 2002, like 
as opposed to 2001 or 2003, like 2002 is a very specific year for me in that like I don't think I could possibly be objective about anything going on here because there were two very important there it was it was like a split screen where the first half of it was my final semester of college. Um, I tried really hard to graduate a semester early, couldn't pull it off, so I only had one class that that semester, and it was in, Indian music and film. I got a B minus, graduated, um, and pretty much every single night we were just like partying our ass off, like ten beers deep, listening to "I Get Wet" and "Is This It." Um, and you know that was the first half. It was beautiful, but also kind of doomed. And then. The next semester, like I, the next, that second half of the year, uh, I graduated. I had no real job prospects, no skills. Uh, and like many people in that position, I decided to go to law school. Uh, and so for that, the rest of 2002, I was just living at home, working at a place called Ubiquitel. Uh, yeah, I know. It was like total office space type shit. Like killing time reading 5,000 word sports guy columns and like the Pitchfork archives and uh, just going to DC and New York on the weekend. And I mean, life was pretty fucking miserable at that point. And so music was the thing that I cared about more. Like I, I have to remember when like, I see like 22 year olds on Twitter that I find to be like annoying or whatever with like the, you know, run me over with a truck Mitski kind of stuff, dude, that would have totally been me. Um, I would just love to tell myself, in 2002, like 20 years down the road that, hey, you're going to write, you're going to get to interview Connor Oberst for the Sports Guys Media Conglomerate, or even better, uh, look, you're going to say some jokes on the internet, and not only will Jenny Lewis see them, but she she's going to think they're funny. I mean, that might have kept me going. Like two, The 2002 Ian Cohen, do you think you'd be disappointed that like there, that there weren't like flying cars in the future? No, fuck that. Like that. I just I want Jenny Lewis to think I'm funny. That's well, it. Well, there you go. <laughs> 22-year-old Ian is happy. Yeah, you know, I had a similar experience in 2002. I was a little bit farther along. I wasn't in college anymore. I was uh, working my first job. I was... Uh, working for my hometown paper, uh, and uh, working the Tuesday to Saturday shift, and uh, going out almost every night, and like closing down the bar, and I didn't work until 10 a.m., so I could do that, I could stay up till 2, Mm -hmm. like on a Wednesday night, and then go go to work. I also had those weird hours, so like, yeah, yeah, I was staying up till 2 or 3 watching MTV, too. But I was, you know, uh, covering truck pulls and uh, strawberry <laughs> festivals and, and corn I, shows. Yeah. I did cover a corn show in yes. 2002, as a matter of fact. Um, and I, I think I met the woman that I got engaged to that year who later broke up with me because uh, she's a lesbian. I think oh. that was the beginning of that narrative in my life. <laughs> 2002. But the beginning was nice, you know, with her, it was a really good uh, relationship in the beginning. But, uh, yeah, I was living in a small town. I remember, you know, and this is another thing we need, need to talk about, uh, you know, the it was such a different time in media at that point. Yeah. Like, I, like I said, I was working for a daily newspaper, which, you know, in 2022, it sounds like saying that you work for the railroad or something. or you Tell us in the a, name of this daily paper. I think this will I think The this Appleton will help Post us. Crescent. In Say Appleton that again. The Post Crescent. In Appleton, Wisconsin. Appleton, which I think is still there. It is still oh, there, cool. but it's it, it's diminished. I mean, you know, most local newspapers now are are slowly dying. Yes. Uh, you know, and just laying people off. It's a, it's a sad situation. Um, but so you know, you you had 
such a thing as local media back then, which now, I mean, that, that seems like that's kind of gradually going away. Uh, and you also had, uh, I think distinct audiences for different kinds of media. And we, and we can see that when we look at the different best of lists, like we pulled up the Paz and Jop list, which is mm. the, uh, Village Voice critics poll that they did every year. It was like really the best way back then to yeah. to see what critical critical consensus was. Like when you couldn't just log on to Twitter. Yeah, th- this one's like legit. It's not like what it had been the last couple of years where it's just like these random scattering of, you know, critics like right. coming together to vote This was like a thousand critics or you know, fifteen hundred. Yeah, like critics. this is big boy stuff. This is as good as it got. And you had that list and you have like the pitchfork list. And this is when uh, you know, pitchfork was deliberately counter-programming what yeah. Rolling Stone was or Spin was. It was uh, purposely not covering it, like the whole music world, but uh, you know this sort of segment mm-hmm. of indie rock really is what they were focused on, which is something now I don't think any music site would do. I mean, now no. it's about going after the broadest possible thing, and you know, and there's like a lot of virtue to that, but also there is something. I kind of miss that idea that you could have a specific audience that you were talking to and, and, and you knew what that audience was and the audience came to you for a specific thing. Yeah. It's very point, very poignant to look at. Like, I think, I think that's the, the separation between like the, like quote online media and prestige media went on for longer than, um, you know, than, than, than people think, but like 2002 is definitely like the beginning of the end. Like it, you definitely, there is a distinct difference. And, um, that, that's why it's so fun to, to, to look at this specific year, as opposed to say 2007, when things aligned a lot more or like 1999, when like online media was still just in its very formative stages. This is like when the power is accumulating. So the passenger up list, we have, uh, I'll run through the top 10. Number yeah. one, number one, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Two, Sea Change by Beck. Mm-hmm. Three, Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots by Flaming Lips. Uh-huh. Four, The Streets, Original Pirate Material. Five, Slater Kinney, One Beat. Six, Bruce Springsteen's The Rising. Seven, The Roots Phrenology. Eight, Eminem, The Eminem Show. Nine, uh-huh. Coldplay, A Rush of Blood to the Head. And 10, Missy Elliott Under Construction. Uh, a fair number of legacy acts, I would say, in that top yeah. 10. Uh, you know, Springsteen. Mm-hmm. And I love Bruce Springsteen. I'm not a huge fan of The Rising. That's like his Let's Cure 9-11 album, right? Yeah, I, that was the album that he was like required to make as yeah. Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> he had to make that album. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. I know a lot of people love that record. I'm not a huge fan of that album. Yeah. Uh, you, you got Beck. Yeah. Wilco... Um, I think was just coming into being a legacy act. I mean, the, the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot was the album that, that really cemented that status for them. Uh, the Roots Phrenology. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember that record. It's all right. Yeah. It's a pretty good record. It's all right. I mean, Quest Love, I think, still has me blocked on Twitter, so I'm going to watch he, he, he blocked you? I'm pretty sure he blocked me. For what? I, I, fuck if I know, dude. Um, I don't know. Like, I'm sure I deserved it, but I mean, just imagine like the nicest uh, guy in media is blind. Like that, oh, that's the dude. shit that really makes me like reconsider my choices in life. But phrenology was like the, that was like the, that was like the album. 
and I think you see a lot of this in 2002. This is something about 2002 that is really hard for people to grasp is that between phrenology and Commons Electric Circus and like Talib Kweli's quality, there was this, and CeeLo's first album, there was like a lot of hip hop that like critics actively rooted for these guys to like, I wish they'd sell as many records as Jay-Z. Like people still worried about album sales. Well, and yeah, and that was, that was sort of like the rockest version of like for rap music. Absolutely. Know, that- and yeah, phrenology is like, a, they had like a 10 minute song that was, like a lot of it, it, it was like kind of like a precursor to Wilco's Less Than You Think. Yeah. Well, and I, because I, I remember like when Jay Z did his Unplugged and the Roots were his backing band. Like yes. now you wouldn't think that's a big deal, but at the time, enormous. That, that was a huge deal. It was sort of like, you know, I don't know, like Jay Z crossing the picket line or I yeah. guess the Roots crossing the picket line or something. Yeah. Uh, pretty funny. The, the, um, Pitchfork list. There's some crossover here, but, yeah, uh, but but fairly different. Number one, Interpol, Turn on the Bright Lights. Mm. Two, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. I'm surprised that Interpol's above Yankee Hotel Foxtrot eh. on this list. I think that's the way to plant a flag, though. Uh, and you will notice by the Trail of Dead, Source Tags and Codes, number three. Yeah. Which shows that they were already having some buyer's remorse because they gave that record a ten. I guess yeah. Yankee Hotel Foxtrot also got a ten. Yeah. That year. Yeah, and Interpol got a 9.5 that year. Mm. It's interesting. Yeah, the two tens. Was, that, you got two tens, uh, and, it, and neither one were the number one record that year. I mean, Very also, let's just consider the fact that like back then, it was probably just like 10 guys on a message board. So I'm not going to like... I'm sure the voting process wasn't particularly like complicated. Uh, the book, Stott for Food, number yeah. four. Very 2002. Number yes. five, The Flaming Lips. Six, uh. Spoon, Killed the Moonlight. Okay. Uh, number seven, The Notwist, Neon Golden, Ooh, very 2002. Yes. Great fucking record. Yes, that is a good record. Uh, Boards of Canada at number eight, Gio uh, Gotti. Huh. I don't remember that album. Um, oh, it's a great one. Number nine, Murray Street, Sonic Youth. That, and, there, there, there's, your, there's your version of like Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> that's a great record, though. I, 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 I'm, I'm pro putting Murray. I think that was considered their comeback because oh. that uh, – at NYC, NYC goes some flowers, man. Which got like zero point zero. Brett yeah. Crescenzo. Huh? Yeah, that was that's a hatchet job. That record deserves better than that. But yeah. I, I think they were ready to re-embrace Sonic Youth after that. And number ten, liars. They threw us all in a trench and stuck a monument on top. Ooh. So those are the top tens from Pass and Chop and from mm. Pitchfork. Yeah. Let's get into our choices here. Yeah. For what we like, let's start with. Uh, the most properly rated album of 2002. <laughs> this is an album that was acclaimed in 2002 and that we feel like deserved the acclaim. Like, and it was, you know, there hasn't been a backlash against it. It hasn't been overpraised. It hasn't been underrated. It, it, it's mm. considered a classic now and it was considered a classic then. What, what's your choice <laughs> for most properly rated album of, of 2002? Well, the way you describe what properly rated means, now I'm like hesitant to say that my answer to this is Interpol's turn on the bright lights because my my theory behind this is it's kind of like a horseshoe theory sort of thing where it's been so overrated and like weirdly underrated that it just kind of sits in this stasis of, yeah, I guess it is properly rated now because, I mean, um, 
the interesting thing is like that if you look at Paz and Jop, like the kind of overall big picture came in at number 15 in between Spoon and Nora Jones. So um, I think like with Interpol that the hype around it has led it to seem a little bit overrated because, I mean, if you like break it down in a granular sense, it's like these... The, it's it's like these layers kind of silly. It's like locked into the you know rising of New York in two thousand two. Um, just you know indie sleaze. You know meet me in the bathroom type stories. And I think all these all this baggage can o- distract from like why people still love this fucking album to this day. Like why they sell it in enormous venues in like Mexico specifically. But you know I my experience with this album is that I. I would listen to it on the train to New York City to visit my friends who were working in like eye banking and like making stupid amounts of money. And we would just like go really fucking hard, <laughs> you know, uh, and that's like the kind it, it, it gave me this like sense of like New York romance, which I don't if I was like 25 when I heard it or like 14 would not have it, it wouldn't translate it. But, you know, when I think about it now. Um, and its reputation, I think about how even if they were compared to Joy Division, they're more like Depeche Mode to me in that it's like total himbo stuff. It's funnier than people give it credit for, but also like really dumb. It also um, grooves harder. Than oh, the, the rhythm section, like Carlos D, man, and Sam Fogarino, that is a fucking <laughs> rhythm section right there. Yeah, I, that was the thing with me when they got compared to Joy Division that I didn't think no. was uh, fair. I just felt like Interpol was more muscular than Joy Division. And, like, yeah. There, there was, uh, again, just, just great grooves. I mean, I know like when Pitchfork, they did that rescore feature last year, they uh, downgraded yeah. uh, this record to like a seven. And I feel like there was a huge outcry about that, which to me shows that, like, in the popular consciousness, people love this record. And I think it's justly remembered as, like, one of the great records of, of 2002. Yeah. And I, I you put it, I, I think it's aged extremely well. I think if people are going to downgrade this album, it's maybe because they feel like Interpol wasn't really able to top it after. Well, they, of they kind of did the same thing. <laughs> and they, or, or that they did the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Uh, which, again, I, that's what I want from Interpol. Like to exactly. Interpol, Interpol to do Interpol is what Interpol should be doing. Um, <clears throat> my most properly rated album is the aforementioned Yankee Hilltail Foxtrot. Uh, I think if you're going to commemorate an album by putting out 11 LPs, that yeah. this is the album from 2002 that you want to do that for. Not only because it's a great record, because it just has like one of the great backstories of an album. Uh, in the past, you know, 20 years. Uh, just what Wilco went through to make it, obviously the movie that came out, mm-hmm. you know, the Jeff Tweedy and Jay Bennett stuff, you know, the the record label drama, uh, and, and just all the iterations that the songs went through when they were making it. It's just a great story. It's a great record. Um, we're going to be talking about our favorite albums later mm-hmm. on in this episode, and I didn't say this was my favorite because I wanted to put what? it in this category. Uh, this is sort of my way of saying... That this is also my favorite. It's like I'm cheating a little bit because I wanted to mention the other record I'm going to be talking about later as my favorite. But like, again, I think this is the most properly rated album of that year. It's it, it's considered a masterpiece. I think it deserves to be called a masterpiece. I I will say it's not my favorite Wilco record. There's other albums I like more than mm. this one. I actually really love A Ghost Is Born. Yes. Uh, the one after this, I, I'm a big fan of Being There as well. Mm. Um, 
obviously Summer Teeth is a great record. Um, but, you know, if you're going to talk about Wilco, or you're going to talk about albums of 2002, you're going to mention Yankee Hotel Foxtrot either on first reference or second reference. You can't really get around it. Have you looked at some of the negative reviews of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot from its time? I remember seeing things like by like Robert Crisco and stuff, who's never liked anything yeah. Jeff Tweedy's ever done. Just, uh, just you know, I think what Crisco said is that he liked the country rock stuff more. Yeah. And he didn't like this arty. You know, I'm looking. I'm looking at stuff. the Village Voice, and it's apparently a positive review. Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is basically a good album, even if a great album. If you're in the mood, though, if you listen to a lot of hip hop or house music or basement bonger or any other genre not dominated by white people, it probably won't be the most extraordinary album you hear all month. And also The Wire, an uh, electronic magazine, called it Faceless Airbrush Production takes you back to the dead days of 70s AOR radio. Oh, you could you get go. away with that stuff in uh, 2002. Well, who wrote that Village Voice thing? Uh, there's absolutely no way I'm going to be able to find it. I'm just okay. looking at Metacritic at like... Uh, it, it, it it still has that pull quote, but of course it goes to a dead link. So I mean, that just sounds like someone who is responding to the praise that it's getting from of course the music press and yeah. But if you don't like this kind of music, it's probably not going to be the best album you've heard all month. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's really trenchant criticism there. Um, I <laughs> I like slamming music writers from twenty years ago. Um, let's talk about the most overrated Ooh. album. Let's let's get a little saucier here. Yes. Uh, I feel like there's like a lot of choices that we could that we could yeah. make. Like just looking at the Paz and Job yeah. top ten, um, you know, there's a there's, there's, I don't think there's any outright bad albums in their top ten, but there's definitely albums that have not aged as well. You disagree? Like what? Okay, what is your choice for most overrated? Yeah, I mean there are a lot of good candidates here. My first thought was Yoshimi, I because. That yes. one I've actually spent a lot of time with. I love Fight Test, but I went back and revisited it, and I feel the same way that I sort of do like back then. It's just there's so much gimmick, and even though like I'm a huge Dave Fridman fan, this album like it sounds like shit. There are so many bad sounds on this, and the production is overbearing and like completely too dense. But I mean, that was the album that I gravitated to immediately when I saw that it was number three on their list. Uh-huh. But I revisited it, and I liked it more than I thought I would. I mean, I remember yeah. not really loving it when it came out. Because I, I, I loved the Soft Bolton when it came yeah, out. Yeah, love that. And I felt, and it, it kind of felt like people were maybe overpraising Yoshimi. Like, I thought yeah. this at the time, because the Soft Bolton was so great. Yeah, it was. It's sort of like their. It's sort of like their Meriwether Post Pavilion and Centipede Hurts at the same time. Well, it's just it. it, it, it it's the album where Wayne Coyne is starting to, uh, you know, buy into, into the whimsy. gimmick. Yeah, he's leaning into his own whimsical persona like a little too much. Yeah, for me, like, do you realize? You know, like songs like that. It's. Mm. I feel like there, that was taking what was on the soft bulletin, you know, all these lush orchestrated songs about mortality mm. and now he's like almost being like an indie rock walt disney or something and it yeah. just it turned me off but that's not the album that I is choose. not it oh um, that's not even fucking close so um, i think i know what you're gonna say yeah, actually i know what it, you're gonna it, say i almost feel bad about this because it's so fucking obvious but like beck look man like midnight vultures i uh, i if we ever have like an episode of like my most despised albums 
uh, you know, spies as like albums that were like praised. That's up there. To me, it is just like the epitome of everything shitty about late nineties, ironic hipster culture or whatever. But so, so sea change, I ignored There's this. There's so many completely. people that love midnight vultures. I too. fucking hate it. I, I mean, I don't hate it. hate it. I don't hate it, but like, I don't, I don't really like it. Yeah. And it, 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 it and it is, I think, I don't know. It just seems really obnoxious. I me. wish the people I hung out with in college played dispatch instead of fucking Deborah. Um, but yeah, so the the elevator pitch for Sea Change was like, oh, he's like getting real now. He's had his heart broken, and uh, he's doing like a Dylan sort of singer songwriter thing. And I'm like, yeah, not interested. Fucking pass. Um, and it was, and you know, also the fact that like Rolling Stone was calling it a masterpiece and so forth. And so I, I revisited it recently, like hoping that the same baggage wouldn't be there as it was from 2002 and somehow this album was like even worse than i expected um his voice is just not suited for it i think the lyrics are still like in they're not like you know automatic bazooty type shit he was doing but it's still like not particularly hard hitting and uh i love nigel godrich as a producer but it just in a way similar to yoshimi it's it's like garish it's very dated production and there's one it goes at one tempo and it, it sounds like the sort of album that I would make if I were making fun of Beck. See, um, I, you know I, I and I also think that like on the last point, like this guy has spent the past twenty years like trying to remake Odele. So th- that that tells you something about like the I don't know the Well, he also tried to remake Sea Change and he was did? very successful well, with Morning Phase. Oh, that's the album right. Of, and he that's, got a Grammy for his trouble. That, yeah, album of the year for that <laughs> record. Uh I just looked this up. Rolling Stone uh five star review mm. for Sea Change. Yeah. Written by David Frick. Real protect uh, the shield shit. Um I mean, I don't think it deserves five stars, but I like it more than you do. I there's actually I, hope some, so. <laughs> I, I I mean I think there is like some cool production on that record actually that song paper tiger i really like the string arrangement on that song uh which reminds me of like early 70s sort of like uh nick drake or even like elton john records uh there's stuff like that that i really like uh i do agree though that and this is something we've talked about beck before i i feel like he has sort of uh an emptiness at his core that makes it hard for me to like revisit his records because yeah. it, it, it seems like it's all facade to me. It's him dabbling in different genres, but there's not like a foundation of emotion or intelligence or, you know, that, that really kind of makes the song stand on their own to me. Maybe like one foot in the grave. There's some stuff on there that I like, but, um, but I don't know. I, I definitely think it's, 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 it's uh, overrated, but, the record that stood out to me, and, and maybe this is more, maybe it's not so much overrated as an album that just seems extremely 2002 to me is the Streets record, original pilot <laughs> material. Like, I wonder, I would love to play the Streets for someone who was born in 2002. Like, what yeah. <laughs> what is going to be their reaction? Because, I mean, I, I don't think that's a bad record, but it just strikes me as an album and you see these albums on every year end list where critics are betting on this thing, you know, sort of changing the culture being really significant and like, uh-huh. and critics just totally whiffed on it. You know, it just ended up being something that was really big in that particular year. And <clears throat> the streets just strikes me as like the hundred Gex of his time, mm. you know, not to say, I mean, maybe hundred Gex are going to be a huge yeah. legacy act, but um, am I wrong? I mean, cause I just feel like the streets have had no, 
impact outside of that small window in the early aughts. So absolutely, I'm going to challenge you on this because in 2004, Grand Don't Come for Free was equally well regarded, but... Okay, this, well, uh, like th- th- two years later. Yes. Okay, but like you know, still the distant past. Here's here here's what I think about this as far as its impact. So, in 2002, um, what's what was happening like almost immediately thereafter is the rise of like grime music, at least in you know the UK, and like it continues to this day. I think it really opened a lane for Americans to maybe start listening to British rap. So. Um, but as far as it being stuck in 2002, absolutely. Like, if I were not 22 years old, relating way too much to Don't Bug Yourself, like, yeah, I'd probably fucking hate it. And I don't pick it. I only listen to this album if I want to remember what it was like to go, like, drinking in, like, shitty DC bars. Um, I, it, yeah, I, I think that it's 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 one of those albums that I would say is dated. And I can say that maybe as, like, a compliment. <laughs> It's just such a reflection of like its culture that there's absolutely no way it could hold up. But I don't know. This seems like an album that could possibly be big on TikTok for whatever reason. Yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. I I, I could see that happening. Like, um, I think you either love this album or like fucking hate it. Yeah, I mean, I I would say I'm neither. I mean, I huh. I liked it when it came out. It's just not something that I have thought about in a long time until like I saw this list and I was like, Oh, oh yeah, the streets. Like, <laughs> do you still make records? Like I've not heard from uh, the streets. recent. Like I think they put out one fairly recently. Like they made uh, grand don't come for free and the hardest way to make an easy living in 2006, which is like there. I think you should listen to them because it's about just the, such the minutiae of like stardom. Like he gets really into drugs. The last song is about, how he received the shipment of fake streets hats. So like he's making songs about like merch. Uh, it's a fascinating like uh, implosion implosion record. I, 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 I think you would find it fascinating. Well, I know since we've talked about him on this show that the streets will probably end up performing on Jimmy Fallon next week and releasing a record. Like we probably God will. Bless. We're willing a streets comeback right now. Uh, let's talk about most underrated, you know, yes. an album that, um, you know, maybe didn't, get its shine in 2002 or maybe still doesn't get its shine mm-hmm. uh, that we'd like to uh, give some love to here. What, what would be the record uh, for you? Yeah. So I'm going to, you know, cross over, be the first uh, podcast to cross over sports and pop culture. Um, John ja Morant just won uh, the most improved player award in the NBA. And like, you almost never see that because it's like not, it, it, you always see it's like someone who averages six points going to 16 points, not someone making the leap from, all-star to like franchise player. And so uh, with this, I I thought about this category in a similar way. Like it would be super obvious for me to mention like Promise Rings Woodwater uh, as an album that was like just really shit on, even though it's like to me a very uh, resonant album. I'm going to bring up Rilo Kiley's The Execution of All Things because it is held in really high regard in some circles and yet, when I look back at Paz and Jop, and I look back at like um, year end lists or even decade lists, I just cannot fathom how this is not considered like uh, like a top line, top ten like instant classic. Um, it appeared, I believe, number two thirty nine on Spin's decade list uh, and number sixty eight on Consequence of Sounds. This album basically invented indie rock in 2002 as we know it. It's got a compelling, highly quotable, photogenic female lead singer. All the lyrics were quoted on Live Journal, which, you know, was the Twitter at the time. 
there's some country influence, some emo adjacent. They got the guy who can't really sing, who does a song every now and again. It's uh, related to Connor Obosh in some way. Like you could release this album. And by the way, like, of course, this album resonated with me as like someone who, you know, like was really can could not fucking handle adulthood as a 22 year old. You put it out. It like unchanged in 2022, and this album is considered an instant classic. Like I think that, um, you know, people love this album. Like I think that it's held in. Like people know it's great, but I don't think it is considered the, a classic on the level of a say Yankee Hotel Foxtrot or or at least a, a Sleater Kenny one beat. I mean, I think it's just as I think it's it deserves to be held in. The, uh, as a status of even i think it's better than any bright eyes album too so yeah it's interesting how i feel like at the time rallo kali was not all that well reviewed uh, you know I, like, my impression of them is that there were some people who loved them but yeah. like it was a little hit or miss and yeah, maybe it was, it was, it was positive like, but not it was not it was positive but like it was like a three and a half star type relationship and i think you're absolutely right that like if rallo kali was like a new band mm-hmm. today. Like if we could somehow take Rallo Kali as they were in 2002 and transplanted them to now, that they would absolutely be like one of the biggest bands in indie rock. I think they'd be mm-hmm. a much bigger, and maybe they wouldn't have broken up yeah. if they would have been uh, so popular. Um, I'm going to pick a, a record that I love from 2002 that I know was not well-reviewed by Pitchfork. I think it was totally <laughs> slammed by Pitchfork. Um but it's an album that uh, that I've I've loved I loved when it came out and I and I love twenty years later and that's Let Go by Not a Surf. Oh, good! Wow, that's a what a curveball. And um, I'm, I just want to look up the review because I feel like Pitchfork gave it like a three point oh. Probably. Um, and this is probably a Brett D. Crescenzo special. And this is like one of those. And I feel like. You know, they were basically looked at as this one-hit wonder band because well, they which had the they, song. Which they were, though. <laughs> which they, I know, but like that they were defined purely by that song, Popular. Yeah. And yeah, they gave it a 3.8 by Ooh. my boy Rob Mitchum. Rob Mitchum. Rob that... wrote that one. Oh, my God. I have to talk to him about that one. Yeah, he um, also he's also did the Days of Parasitos review as well. Him, but, he, uh, he, he had a past life uh, as, as like kind of a hatchet man. I got to respect that. Um. But uh, you know they had the, they had the song popular, and I think a lot of critics dismissed them as like, well, they're, they're the popular band. You know, we don't have to take them seriously. And meanwhile, not a surf. I think they put out a series of albums that were actually quite strong after they had that big hit. Yeah, that moved them, and you know, and, and it wasn't radically different from what they you know what, what they were you know in that in that big hit song. I think at the time they had this reputation as being sort of like a Weezer knockoff, like maybe a little bit jokier yeah, version of, of Weezer. Yeah. And um, by the time they get to Let Go, it is moving more almost like in this big star direction, like Mm -hmm. very beautiful songs, uh, like clever lyrics, Mm -hmm. um, and and more of like a lush kind of almost like power pop type sound. Yeah. and um, It was released on uh, Barsook, which is uh, Death Cab's label, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah. um, It was released on Barsook Records. And yeah, I remember them like kind of, being that Chris Walla sort of uh, sort sort of uh, sort of uh, inner circle, and I don't know, Not a Surf is just one of those bands that I feel like has never been like a hugely popular band, but they definitely have their uh, 
their acolytes and people who liked them a lot. And I feel like this record, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, was crucial in rebooting them in that direction. Yeah. Uh, where they weren't just going to be defined that by that one song. But I don't know. This is a record that I feel like really holds up. Mm-hmm. And I think should be mentioned more. You know, you mentioned how the execution of all things isn't doesn't appear on all decade lists. Mm-hmm. I think Let Go deserves at least an honorable mention if you're talking about something like that for for indie rock records. I have no idea how you feel about Now to Serve for this album. I, yeah, do you, you like this record? Um, so yeah, the uh, Inside of Love. I mean, like that. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like kind of corny, but. Um, it's a pretty song though. I you know It's a pretty it's like corny but like it really hit me in a very uh in a very like emo sort of way. I love Blizzard of 77. I've tried with this album. I like it. It's never hit quite the way that I expected it to. Um and the here's a funny thing about them. Like th- th- this should show you just what like not a surf's reputation was. This is one of these albums that was released in 2002 in Europe first and then like five months later in the u.s like that stuff used to happen (laughs) in 2002 Um, i think it kind of shows like where they were at at that point yeah absolutely Uh, and 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 it it, it does seem like again like there wasn't like a not a serve phenomenon going on in the aughts but i do feel like this record it did reboot them and i think it absolutely did it earned them a different following and i think it allowed them to move forward on their subsequent records yeah and also um if i'm looking at their spotify page they got a guy with like huge white guy dreads in the band yeah they've had that for a long time yeah he's really he's held on to the the dreads yeah it's like like, it's like spoon but like a guy who sort of looks like uh, chinese democracy era axel rose (laughs) there you go uh, all right, well, let's get to our favorite album of okay. 2002. We've talked about properly rated, overrated, underrated. This is the this is our favorite album of the year. And again, you know, we've, we've talked about some of the albums that made you know, the top 10 list that year. I mean, this was like a really great year. I mean, I'm just trying to remember if there's any albums that we haven't mentioned that no. came out this year. I mean, we're going to say what our favorite is here, but... You know, Rush of Blood to the Head, Coldplay came oh, out this year. God, I, think, yeah. I think that was in the top ten of one of those. Yes, um, it was. We, we have a Spoon, No Twist. Um, Heathen I mean, Chemistry by Oasis came out uh, this year. Make Up the Breakdown by Hot Hot Heat. Uh, oh, Pretty Girls record. Make Graves. Uh, McGlusky do Dallas. I mean, it, 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 it was such a – it was – like it, it's kind of hard to believe that I heard all these albums, despite the fact that uh, you know streaming didn't exist and I barely had like ten fucking dollars to rub together. It's still somehow, uh, you know, I ended up hearing everything that was important for me to hear. We also haven't talked about Bright Eyes Lifted or Days of Parasitos. Read music, speak Spanish. Um, fuck, it, it was just a. Gr- Cameron's come home with me. <laughs> Pearl Sigur, Jam Riot Act, yeah, which Sigur I read about Ross, in my upcoming the, book. Sigur Ross, the parenthetical uh, album, which I listened to. Like I was taking Ambient that year because like I could not go to sleep and working weird hours. That one always knocked my ass the fuck out. Hours, uh, their their highly anticipated follow up to Distorted Lullabies, Precious. Oh, good uh, job working hours into this episode. That's the <laughs> Ian Cohen fans take a drink. Um, all right, what 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 is your favorite album? Okay, of this so, year we've listed. There's lots of great albums, but like, what was your favorite of 2002? Yeah, I mean, th- I could have said this is properly rated, but you know, my favorite album. I wrote about this uh, extensively at Stereogram earlier this year. Is Annual Notes by the Trail of Dead, Source Tags and Codes. Um, I mean, I believe it deserved the 10, but even beyond that, like this reminds me of like the sort of albums that I put at number one, uh, even these days where it is, 
a rock band, like a pretty straight up the middle rock band, just making this Pyrrhic masterpiece. Like Trail of Dead, when you look at this album in the context of like their entire career, it is abundantly clear. They put everything into this and to the point where it kind of, I don't know, killed their, not killed their career, but like set this bar that was impossible for them to clear. Um, and it's kind of similar to the execution of all things. Um, it makes me think, it, it, it almost seems like this is an album that like various forms of like emo or post-hardcore or just indie rock in general is still trying to push towards rather than follow. Um, it, it seems like it's a, an album that kind of splintered off into all these uh, various uh, subgenres when you, this seems like the kind of destination that indie rock is still making. Um, I don't know. Like when, when I play it now, still holds up incredibly well. The songwriting, it like I, I the more I listen to it, like the more I get into the lyrics. And it's funny how like they, it was kind of seen as like, yeah, this is like a kind of a, a Sonic Youth for Dummies type album or like My Bloody Valentine, but like kind of like more Texan. And, you know, the truth is it's like, yeah, but like what if those bands had like real emotional pull and were kind of more like Bright Eyes? Yeah, this is an album that was made in a lab for me. Um, I can still throw it on, still feel exactly the way I felt in 2002. Um, yeah, so shout out to Trail of Dead, making just a fucking, like, a one for the ages. Can't say enough good things about it. I gotta say, too, like, the records before this album came out are also, like, quite strong. And I think Madonna fucking like, rules. Like, Madonna's a really good record. I think their self-titled debut is, like, a good record, too. You can see them ramping up yeah. the source tags and codes and then really hitting it out of the park. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw them on this tour, mm. uh, which was amazing. It was, like, in a s- smallish club. Mm. And just to, you know, be Violent in a room shows. with that band uh, was... Uh, be in a room with a band like that, like, loud and on it was, mm. was, was pretty incredible. I didn't uh, see yeah. them that year, but, like, my brother did, and I think he got so drunk he fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the band being like pretty drunk. I think I saw them on Halloween. Oh fuck! Year, which was you know even even crazier. Um, so I said earlier, you know, I said Yankee Hotel Foxtrot was my most properly rated album, and it would be I think co-favorite. Mm. But I really wanted to make sure that I shouted out songs for the deaf. Oh yeah, as my favorite because this was my favorite album of that year in that year. Yeah, and it's still a record that I love a lot. Uh, and it's one of those albums that completely changed my music taste for a while where I only wanted to hear albums that inspired this record or were inspired by it or were somehow <laughs> adjacent to it. I don't know if you've ever had albums like that in your life. I remember oh, like, when yeah. OK Computer came out, I had a similar thing where I just wanted to hear albums that were like OK Computer. And I just – I bought so many like just crappy Yeah, Muse bands. showbiz. This is where this is where our relationship yeah. with Muse begins. <laughs> exactly. And with Songs for the Deaf, I was like, oh, OK, I'll just get all these Fu Manchu albums. <laughs> and, you know, things like that. Like, cause yeah, I just, Caius, I just, man. <laughs> yeah, Caius, yes. And, which was – cool and Caius is a great band Fu Manchu's like okay but like not as good as Queens of the Stone Age yeah, it's definitely a 90s sort it's like this is the sort of band that could get a record deal in 1996 and I just wonder um, you know how someone would feel hearing this record now I, I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly like how this album would land <laughs> for a contemporary audience because you know when you talk about metal now it seems like metal records are so crafted for a specific metal audience so mm. it's about being just as heavy as you can be yeah and 
the thing I love about Songs for the Deaf is that it is a hard rock record yeah. in a classic sense. It's a melodic album. There's lots of great hooks, but there's also a lot of attitude on it. There's a lot of heavy guitars. Uh, it feels commercial in a way that I, I'm not seeing like bands that are this commercial, but also, I don't want to say arty, but there was. No, a, that's know, the proper word. There was like a thinking man's quality to this record. Yeah. Uh, that uh, combined with the accessibility, like this is an album, I think to this day, like you can play songs from this record next to, you know, Shinedown songs. <laughs> it, it, it makes sense, but it also stands apart from yeah. that kind of stuff. And I love that, the, like how they threaded the needle in that regard uh, with this record. And, uh, you know, again, like, you know, Dave Grohl drumming. I mean, I think the knock on this record is that it is from that generation of Mm. like, of like the loudness wars, like where it's, it's pretty compressed. Well, Um, that's, that's their thing. I mean, like they have a very distinct guitar tone where it's just like, you know, when it's them. I mean, I think the drum sound on this record, I don't love, like, especially because Dave Grohl's drumming is so great but like the drums sound like a little uh flat yeah and i wish they were roomier i wish they had i wish like steve albini had recorded the drums like he had like the in utero drum sound on songs for the deaf then it might be my favorite record of all time i don't know i think uh, it's i think it's a load-bearing sound i think you can't like if you were to change the character even just a little bit it wouldn't be what it is but you know you got mark lanigan on there he's sounding great and Mm -hmm. uh this was the last record with Nick Oliveri. Uh, so you had that element in there. And, he, you know, that's a whole other story. Yes, it but is. But <laughs> just speaking purely in terms of the music, you know, he brought, you know, like this wild man element to the band that mm-hmm. really offset what Josh Ome was doing in a real great way. I mean, there's like multiple cancelable characters in this band now. Oh, yeah. You know, because yeah, Josh is, Ome's is, got his own baggage. Yeah, this is um, problematic as shit, man. <laughs> but again, looking at it just as an album, I think I'm on the Wikipedia page calling this the best hard rock album of the early 21st century because I wrote that somewhere yeah. at one point. And I stand behind that. I think it is. Um, and I just love it. I loved it in 2002. It was my favorite album in that year. And it's still, I think, the album I look back most fondly. Like If I think of myself in 2002, it's me listening to this album. You know, like, <laughs> this is the album I remember listening to the most. So that's yeah. why I got to say it's my favorite. Yeah, me, I, I definitely would listen to this playing Grand Theft Auto. Like, uh, oh, that, yeah. those are the days. <laughs> Not a care in the world except uh, where the fuck my life was going. Hey, I'm going to listen to Queens of the Stone Age and feel like, uh, you know, like I'm still like, like, like I'm cool enough to like rob a bank. Yeah, I mean, you know, pre-gaming to go out, listening to First It Giveth, <laughs> oh. you know, that, that was living. I'm telling you, <laughs> just listen to First the Giveth over and over again. Uh, well, that about does it for this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. 